Good morning, College Park. Our scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew, the 16th chapter, verses 13 to 20. I invite you to read along with me. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do men say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I want to welcome you this morning for those of you here on our North Indy campus and those of you in our Fishers campus. Normally on the third Sunday of the month we gather together to pray. We're going to be doing that next Sunday and uh, we're going to have not only that but a congregational meeting and then also talk about uh, race and the gospel. Charles Ware from Crossroads Bible College will be with us and we'll do a little bit of a CPI forum with some Q&A time and hope you can come and join us. It will really be an important conversation starter and uh, one that we need to think about not only culturally but also for us as a church. Hope you can come uh, next Sunday evening. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning asking for wisdom and understanding from your word, that we might be able to apply the scriptures that are in front of us and apply them to our lives and apply them to our church. And we want you today to speak to us by the Holy Spirit. We want to invite your presence now, Lord, into um, this very room and to the things that we will think about, because what we're going to engage in is your holy word, and we need to hear from you. And so we ask you to come now and help us, help me to make clear what this text says. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Our theme for the month of August is the ordinary revolution. And the aim of this series is to help you understand how to renew your passion for the ordinary Christian life that leads to extraordinary changes. The burden for this series, if you weren't here last week, came out of a growing concern that I have when I look at my own life, when I look at my family, when I look at um, American evangelicalism, with our fascination with sort of the next big thing spiritually. Or when uh, I think of um, moments in my lifetime that were sort of spiritual mountaintop experiences, I found that coming down from those is sometimes hard. Um, and my understanding of the Christian life can be skewed based upon those mountaintop experiences. The fact of the matter is the Christian life is far more about really good and helpful ordinary experiences, but we tend to forget that. 
As Michael Horton in his book Ordinary says, we've forgotten that God showers his extraordinary gifts through ordinary means of grace, loves us through ordinary fellow image bearers, sends us out into the world to love and serve others in ordinary callings. And so we're taking this month to talk about this ordinary Christian life, the ordinary revolution. We want you to do three things. We want you first to learn something. So when you're sitting here on Sunday morning, the, the aim of these sermons is to help you to think new thoughts. We've given you a sermon uh, manuscript when you came in, a discussion guide for small groups, and we want you to be able to think, so why am I here? Why is this material um, in my life at this particular point in time, and what exactly is God saying to me? So we're looking for one particular application that you can put down on that ordinary challenge card. Speaking of the ordinary challenge, that's the second thing we want you to do, not just to learn something, but also to try something. Out in the four-year area, there are 12 different challenges, and we want you to take one of those challenges to try and move your Christian life in incremental steps in the next uh, 30 days or so. And then finally, we want you to share something. In the context of a small group, or with your family, or an ABF class, or maybe a temporary live group, we want you to talk about your experience so that other people can learn from what it is that you're discovering and can share in that experience along with you. Now last week we were in John 15. We talked about what it means to abide, the connection between us dwelling in Christ and Christ dwelling in us. There's a dependent relationship, there's a connection to Christ, a connection that starts when you become a follower of Jesus, a dependent relationship, meaning everything that you have, everything you are, everything you'll ever do is dependent upon who and what he is. And there's also this continuation dynamic where we abide in him for all of our life, we follow after him and incorporate his presence into every aspect of who and what we are. So that everything in our life is touched by the influence of Jesus' life, Jesus' power, Jesus' words, Jesus' love. So let me ask you, as we thought about abide last week, how did it go this week? Did you have any success in abiding in Christ in new ways? Did you have some, some failures in abiding in Christ? The beautiful thing about abiding in Christ is this, that if you had a really great week, if you were like, yeah, I crushed it this week, and you need to know that John 15 reminds you, yeah, apart from you, you can do nothing without Jesus. So what John 15 does is it helps to tamp down, tamp down our pride when things go, have gone really well, and if you had a really bad week and you're just like, man, it was a struggle, I, I, I don't think I did any better, and it feels like maybe um, last week was worse than even two weeks ago, you kind of walked in thinking, I'm a kind of a loser Christian, right? John 15 reminds us that apart from him you can do nothing. And so it serves to both encourage those who are discouraged and also to humble those who might be proud. That's the beauty of John 15. Today what we wanna talk about is the context of ordinary. And in particular, I want you to think about this question with me. What is your vision of the church? Meaning, when you woke up this morning and decided to come to church, and I'm glad that you've come, why did you come here? And what is it that you're expecting? What, what makes a good Sunday for you? What is your vision of what the church should be? You need to know that throughout church history there have been a number of different perspectives as to what the church should be. Um, prior to the Reformation, there was the idea that the church was a, a ladder, and you climbed up the ladder by being involved in religious services. You tried to increase your spirituality, and maybe even getting as spiritual as, as close as you could to the Pope. So one view of the church is the latter. 
Another view is the fortress. The, the Anabaptists fled culture and fled the compromised church, and they sort of fled into this castle, and they built a moat around it, and they drew up the drawbridge, and just was like us four and no more kind of a perspective. So you have the ladder, the fortress. The, in the Reformation, you had kind of this school mentality. The church is a school. It's a place where you come to learn and, and understand and increase in your knowledge. That the more that you know about God, the closer that you'll get to him. And I think there's another image that really reflects where we are in 21st century American Christianity, and it's this model, that the church is a market. I think a lot of people come to church with a sort of a market mindset, almost like a mall. Like there's lots of these boutiques. There's the small group boutique, there's the ABF boutique, there's the women's Bible study boutique, there's the Sunday morning worship boutique. You can kind of pick and choose, kind of walk through the market and you can kind of pick and choose what you want to be a part of. You got the children's ministry boutique, you got the Christian karate group boutique, you got the mops group. All of these are legit ministries of the church. It's on the website. You got all these things and I'm not joking. Yeah, so all right, so. And all of these things are part of the ministry. You kind of walk around, you pick and choose. And um, my question is, is, is that right? Is that how we should think about the church? In fact, some of you, when you were looking at a new church or, or may even use language like this, and at one level it's okay, but I think it's telling. Well, right now we're church shopping. So the, the challenge is that the Bible uses all kinds of um, metaphors that are more organic, things like the body, a family, a garden, a city, a kingdom, a gathering. These, these metaphors are in the Bible on purpose. And what I wanna try and do is help us to get a vision of what is the church all about, and for that matter, what is this church about? What is this church about? And how does that relate to you? So first, I want you to understand the importance of the local church. You might find it interesting to know that in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it only records that Jesus used the word church twice. And they're both used in the Gospel of Matthew, and they're within a chapter or two of one another. Matthew 16, and Matthew 18. Those are the two places where the word church appears. Let me show them to you. In verse 18 of chapter 16, it says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, let's see if we can figure out what makes the church so important. Here's the first thing that makes the church important, is that it is a confessional group of people. Chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus is in effect asking his disciples, as you hear the crowds and hear people talking, who do they say that I am? And so they list off these prophets or great people in Israel's history. And then the real key question comes in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? He puts it to them. And in verse 16, Simon Peter replied, 
you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything that follows in verses 17 and 19 is predicated on this statement. Peter's statement is very key. He's representing the disciples and all of those who will confess this very confession in the future. And what you need to know is that what Jesus says following verse 17, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. We'll get to those verses in a moment. I just want you to see that Jesus affirms Peter's statement and says, on you, on this statement, Peter, as you've expressed it, I will build my church. So the foundation of the church, therefore, is first and foremost a confession of Jesus as Lord. Peter confesses. Notice it's not just that he believes, it's that he confesses. So the church is built on a common confession. We'll talk more about this in a moment, but I just want to register this thought with you, that the church is a group of people who have identified with Jesus by confessing him as Lord. In other words, you can't just say, I believe in Jesus, but you've never said out loud, I believe in Jesus. You can't believe internally without confessing it with your mouth. There are no incognito Christians. If nobody knows that you're a Christian, you're probably not. You know what I'm saying? The idea is that you confess that Jesus is Lord. In a little bit, we'll talk about how Christians go public with their relationship with Jesus. There is no incognito Christian. Number two, it's also providential. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So notice here that there's something about God's sovereignty that's ruling all over this, that Peter doesn't just say this of his own power, but Jesus attributes to his confession to actually God's intervening in his life. So there's a connection between what Peter is saying and what God is doing. Note that, because we'll come back to this idea. There's a confession that Peter makes, but there's a connection between what Peter says and what God is doing. So there's a providential piece. Number three, there's a personal component. He says to him, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So he makes this very personal statement. You are Peter, and he uses a play of words between the name Peter and the word rock, and he says to him that on you, I will build my church. What's he saying? He's, he's identifying Peter here as a representative of the disciples and all those who confess. So not just on Peter, but on Peter as representative by confessing that he has articulated a new spiritual reality that has now laid the foundation for what we know as the church. So this confession that Peter makes becomes the foundation for this new spiritual entity, namely the church. What does that word church mean? It simply means the gathered ones. It means the congregation. It means the, the called out ones. It means a gathering of people who belong to Jesus and who identify with Jesus, and they, they gather together. Now this word church has far more implications than what you might realize at first. What Jesus is doing here is identifying a very significant shift in authority and focus. The spiritual center prior to the coming of Jesus was the temple. 
The physical temple and everything that happened happened around the temple. The life of Israel was the temple. But what Jesus is identifying here now is that there's a new entity that's coming. There's a new spiritual center that the spiritual temple will no longer be a physical gathering, but rather will be the people of God who are gathering, not in a building, but as the building. And so Peter's confession becomes the foundational part of that reality, that there is something new that's coming. On your confession, Peter, I will build my church. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That dwelling place is not a temple, that dwelling place is a people. A dwelling place isn't a location. That dwelling place is the gathering of God's people who now become the temple. And what you need to know is that the ordinary church is simply the gathering of ordinary people who have confessed an extraordinary reality. And that extraordinary reality is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what the church, that's what this church is all about. So now, spiritual life is no longer located in a temple, but rather it's located with a people. And I want you to understand how amazing that is. The temple was marked with grandeur and beauty and mystery. It was inspiring, it was impressive. That's what temples are designed to do. They're, they're designed to impress you. Capital buildings are designed to impress you. You go to Washington, D.C., you're gonna walk around and see very impressive buildings. Those buildings are not just functional. You don't have a capital because like, stuff happens there. You have a capital because really important stuff happens there. That's why the hallways in the Capitol building are really tall. You're not gonna have any seven and a half foot ceilings in the Capitol, you have a big Capitol. You're not gonna have you know, shag carpet in the hallways. You're gonna have marble. It's gonna look really impressive with big pillars, why? Because the Capitol building is a statement, not just a facility where things happen. Well, the beautiful thing that happens here is that the church is not the building. The church is the people gathered in Jesus' name. But my question is this, I wonder if we have the thought that the church in its gathering is really important and very impressive. Not impressive in terms of who we are, but significant in terms of what happens and what it means. In other words, when we gather together for corporate worship, what we do together as the followers of Jesus is extremely important. It's an ordinary Sunday, it's an ordinary day in the week, and yet what happens in this context is absolutely extraordinary. Let me show you how powerful it is. Verse 17 or brother 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Here's the first powerful statement. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Notice, the forward lean of the church is towards going after the gates. You're not attacked by gates, you attack gates. The idea is there's a dark world, and light is being shown into that dark world, and the idea is that the church is in the middle of a spiritual battle. Do you know that you're in a spiritual battle? 
Do you know that there is uh, forces of darkness and evil that are at work? Do you know that there is, there is light and dark that are at war with one another and we're in the middle of that and the Bible promises here? Level of assurance that there's nothing in this world or the next that can overthrow the church. The church is in a battle and the good news is we will not lose. That's the hope. Why? Because the grave is empty. Number two, not just that the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he also then says, verse 19, I will give you, this is a very important statement, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I will give you the keys. What are keys for? Keys are signs of authority, aren't they? I mean, if you show up at work tomorrow and um, someone says, hey, I need you to turn in your keys, that's not a good day, right? <laughs> that happens, it means that you're getting walked out, because you walked out the door because keys indicate authority, they indicate relationship. I've, I've had enough sons that have you know, learned how to drive and if I'm walking to the car and one of my sons say to me, hey dad, can I have the keys? He's not asking if he can hold them, right? <laughs> he's not asking, can I jingle them because I like the sound they make. What he's asking for is permission to have the authority to get in the driver's seat and to turn on a car that I bought with insurance that I paid for, right? <laughs> Whose liability is all mine. And he's asking if he can have that Authority by proxy to drive what he doesn't own. That's what he's asking for. So keys have authority connected to them, right? What is Jesus saying here? To be given the keys means to be given authority. In fact, in the book of Revelation, it's Jesus who has the keys to death in Hades. What he's saying here is this. Listen carefully. He is imparting to Peter and to all who confess Christ as Lord, a level of divine authority. Through Peter's confession, and in context of the gathering of God's people, what's happening here is Jesus is embedding an authoritative connection between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave the keys to the kingdom to those who confess his name. That is a really big deal. Let's see what happens next. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth, here's the third thing. So the first related to gates, second related to keys, third, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What does this mean? Well, Jesus takes divine authority even further by specifically identifying that there is a direct connection between what happens on earth and what happens in heaven. He says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. He's borrowing here from a rabbinic sort of language, which rabbis were charged with the responsibility of binding and loosing, which meant that if something was bound, it was forbidden. If it was loosed, it was permitted. And so the rabbis were constantly making decisions as to what was acceptable and what wasn't, what was holy and what was profane. In the same way that the Old Testament priests, part of their role was to decide what was holy and what was not. As applied here, it means this, that the church, the gathering of God's people, the gathering of God's confessors, those who've confessed Jesus as Lord, that these people are given divine authority to do what? They are given divine authority to regulate themselves and to determine who is to be admitted into the church and who is to be excluded from the church. That there's an authority connected with the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose. So what are they binding and loosing? They're, they're binding, in effect they're saying, yes, this person is a follower of Jesus, and no, this person is not a follower of Jesus, based upon their 
their affirmation of their relationship with Jesus based upon their profession of faith in Jesus. That's how someone gets into the church. And also, disassociating if their life doesn't fit with the reality of the gospel. So Matthew 16, we'll get to Matthew 18 in a moment. Matthew 16 helps us to see this on the front end. Peter's confession is affirmed by Christ. It's set in the context of the church, and there are powerful dynamics in play. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And what, what Jesus is saying here is this, that the church is representing Jesus on the earth. The church is acting on Jesus' behalf. The church has the authority to guard the gospel by deciding and determining who should be in the church and who should be out. Think of it this way. God is very zealous for the protection of his brand. You can't just walk around in life and say, I believe in Jesus, without there being some level of affirmation that you actually believe the gospel. Nor can you just walk around life and say, I believe in Jesus, and then have a lifestyle that doesn't fit with the gospel. What Jesus is indicating here is that the church is responsible to help regulate itself inside the church and also those who should be outside of the church. In other words, who should wear the Jesus name tag? You get into the church by confessing Christ as the Lord and having somebody affirm, yes, what you believe is genuinely the gospel. Yes, you really are a follower of Jesus, and you're put out of the church, as we'll see in a moment, by living a lifestyle that doesn't fit with that gospel. So some of you are immediately thinking, well, how judgmental is that? But here would be my pushback. Do you want just anybody walking around claiming to be a Christian, regardless of what they believe about Christ, the gospel, the Trinity, salvation? Do we just take the name Christian and just whatever you want to call it, whatever that means to you, we can't do that. The gospel is on the line. And for that matter, do you want anybody claiming to be a Christian who can just live any way that they want? I mean, how many of you have shared Christ and had someone say to you, well, that's what you believe, but I got this guy that I know who claims to be a Christian. His life doesn't even fit with what you're telling me. How is your good news good? Because it doesn't work for this guy. At some level, Jesus wants the church to regulate itself and to protect the brand of the gospel in the world. And so Matthew 16 helps us by showing us what is the authority of the church, that she's been given the keys to the kingdom, that what she binds on earth is bound in heaven, what she looses on earth is loosed in heaven. And then secondly, we move into this area of what's called church discipline. You see, in many respects, Matthew 18 is the second half of Matthew 16. The wording, the language is so incredibly similar. And what's more, this role of guarding the gospel is not just a role for church leadership, it's for all of us. All confessors of Christ are called to know and guard the gospel. We're all a part of the priesthood of the believers. We all have a responsibility to maintain the holiness, if you will, of the church. Look at Matthew 18, verse 15. Here's the, the process for resolving conflicts. If your brother sins against you, you go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. What a great thing. Go one-on-one, -on -one, talk about it, see if you can get it worked out. It's just really basic. How many times I've had to be reminded myself or had to remind other people, you got a conflict? Have you gone and talked to them about it? No. Oh, let's start there, right? So that's where you start. Second step. 
If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Verse 16, if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jesus is drawing from a key Old Testament concept in Deuteronomy 19 that nothing was established in a court of law unless it was verified by two or three witnesses. So two or three witnesses are going, uh, to, to see is this a, a legit concern or is this just a, a really big misunderstanding? If in that context, the person still refuses to listen, the witnesses verify, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then notice this, tell it to the church, second time the word is used, only the second time, and only two times in the entire gospels, it's used here, tell it to the church. Why the church? The reason is, is because it's the church that has the keys of the kingdom, that's why. It's not just these two or three witnesses, it's the church that has the keys of the kingdom. And then he says, and let him, if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, meaning that you consider him to be somebody who's not a part of the community of faith. So that's the process of church discipline. It's for the purpose of calling someone back to faith in Christ, and it's for the purpose of guarding the gospel. To say, look, in order to be a follower of Jesus, you gotta believe certain things about who Jesus is. You gotta believe the gospel, and as well, you have to live the gospel. Not perfectly, but it means that if you continue to be unrepentant, and you refuse to turn, and yet you claim to be a follower of Jesus, the church has the right to come to you and say, hey bro, if you're gonna live that way, I'm taking the name tag back. Like, like you can live that way, but you can't claim to be a follower of Jesus. Like you can't have the name tag Jesus on your life and live like that because that life doesn't fit with the gospel. And what God wants is in the context of the ordinary Christian life is that people understand that the church is really, really important because the gospel is that important. Now look at what follows in verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you Bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And we just heard that in Matthew 16, right? He gave him the keys to the kingdom and said that. Now he's talking about church discipline. Why is he saying that? Because he wants us to understand that God's authority has now been brought to earth by virtue of what the ordinary church is supposed to be and do. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Notice, two or three of you agree, there's this power that has come to this assembly in Christ's name. And verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Think of that. There I am among them, that Jesus is among them. So let me ask you, when, when you think about this gathering, do you think that Jesus is here? Because you know, according to that verse, he is. He's here. In a little bit, we're gonna celebrate his presence by virtue of the Lord's table. But as we gather together, we're doing something that's different in this category than any other type of gathering that you're ever a part of. There is something significant, something otherworldly, something very important. The gathering of God's church on earth has authority and implications beyond what we often even realize. We are called to know the gospel. We're called to confess the gospel. We're called to guard the gospel in order so that we can share the gospel in the world. Listen, if you don't know the gospel, you can't share the gospel. If you don't confess the gospel, you probably don't have the gospel. If you don't guard the gospel, you won't have credibility to share the gospel in the world. That's the point. And what Jesus is in effect saying is that the church is that important. So here's my question. Is this how you see the church? Or do you see the church as a market? As a school? 
as a ladder, as a fortress. So how do you think about the church? How do you think about the things that we do in the context of the church? Let me just press this in in a couple ordinary expressions of how we do life together. Let me give you some examples of sort of the ordinary ways in which we live. The first, the Lord's Day. Sunday's ordinary, isn't it? Every six days it shows up. God designed it to be that way. Genesis, he creates in six days, on the seventh he rests. Why? Because God wants to remind the entire created order it's not all about work and creation. That's why the seventh or the um, seventh day is declared as a day of rest in the Ten Commandments. In the Old Testament, it was a day to be reminded that human activity is not the foundation of everything, that God is at the center of everything. In the New Testament, the church begins to meet on the first day of the week in order to celebrate and remember the essence of what it means to be a Christian, according to Acts 20. So we're to be reminded then on the first day of the week that work isn't everything, that we're not everything, that our families aren't everything, that that our friends aren't everything, that Jesus is everything. And here's the problem. Through the course of six days, that can leak. You can leave here all like, Jesus is everything. By the time you get to Saturday, you're like, he's nothing. And you need to come back and be reminded, and that's what the Lord's Day is all about. So it's an ordinary part of the week, but it's anything but ordinary. What we celebrate on this day is the essence of what Christianity really is all about. So let me just ask then, so is this day any different for you in any way? Culturally, we're not helped by this, and it feels like it's getting worse. Things are beginning to intrude all the time on Sunday. Soccer games, school meetings, band practice, catching up on emails, in-service meetings from work, and any number of other things. Sundays is being invaded because it's viewed just as another day. Listen, for those of you who have soccer games this afternoon, I'm not giving you a guilt trip. I'm not saying you can't do that. I, I lived in that sort of cultural fallacy in Western Michigan. But what I am saying is that Sunday has to be somehow different because what we celebrate on this day is different and important. And I've seen it happen. And someone who just views Sunday as just another day of the week or think they can just miss Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and have it have have no effect on their soul, that's a complete mistake. You need ordinary Sundays because your commitment to what is really important, my commitment to what's really important, it tends to leak. Secondly, congregational worship. So Sundays are the context for our gathering together in corporate and congregational worship. But here's my question. How do you think about ordinary gatherings of congregational worship? Do you come with a mindset considering the significance of what this gathering is all about? Do you come with a a sense that there's a connection between heaven and earth that's even happening? Do you consider the importance of what we are really doing here? Or is this just like a big mall gathering and you're looking to figure out what can I get out of it? You see, in gathering together, we are assembling our expression of the body of Christ. In other words, you can't be the body of Christ by yourself. You not only make a bad choir, you make a terrible preacher. You need people around you. In singing, what are we doing? We're joining our voices in considering and confessing truths that have changed our lives. 
We're encouraging one another with what we're singing. We're affirming our confession in Christ and giving, we're giving tangible affirmation that everything we, belong to, everything we have belongs to God. In prayer, we're uniting our hearts together in a way that is unique and different than when we're praying by ourselves. In the word, we're learning and rehearsing the truth of God's word as revealed to us in the scriptures. And then when we leave, we are sent out into the world for another six days to live on mission with purpose, with the aim of representing Jesus in the world. And our worship together is very important and very special and very significant. And that's why, to be very candid, we need children in worship services with their parents over the long haul. When I came here, that was not the case. And I want to encourage you that if your children grow up in this church and all they know is children's Sunday school and then they never experience a corporate worship gathering, they go off to college, the chance of them returning back to the church is very, very small. Children need to understand there's something bigger, something grander, something not just like them that's in a part of the spiritual development of their life because what happens in the corporate gathering is something that's really important and really significant. Next, baptism. Believer's baptism is one of two ordinances of the church. It's a picture of a spiritual baptism that happens when a person puts his or her faith in Jesus. And being drawn out of the water, a person is symbolizing they've been crucified and resurrected with Jesus, that they are then in Christ. In Matthew 28, Jesus charged his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what happens, by baptizing someone in the name of Jesus, that person is going public with his or her relationship with Jesus. That's why often you'll see things in the scriptures that so closely link a public profession of faith and baptism. In many cultures around the world, in fact, you're not a legit believer until you go public with your faith in Jesus by virtue of baptism. The idea is that that event is more than just a church ritual. It is a public affirmation that you are confessing Christ as Savior and as Lord. It's the ordinary part of church life, but it is anything but ordinary. It's when you go public and say, I am a follower of Jesus. Watch this. Next, membership. Another important expression of this is church membership. What do I mean by church membership? Here's what I mean. A church, church membership is this. It's a formal relationship between a church and a Christian that is characterized by the church's affirmation that that person is a follower of Jesus, like in Matthew 16, and the commitment of oversight to the care of that person's discipleship. It also means that that Christian then is submitting, Hebrews 13, to live out his or her discipleship in the care of that church. In other words, it means that the church officially affirms that you're a follower of Jesus, and it means that a person in that church officially identifies, these are my people, and I'm gonna help propagate the gospel with these people in view. It means that you have a different relationship with the people with whom you are a member of that church. For instance, if there's a guy that you work with and you know he's a Christian, and you know that he's doing something that's wrong and immoral, you have a general obligation to do something to help that brother. But if that person who you work with is not only a follower of Jesus, but they're also a member of this church, 
You have a heightened level of responsibility in the same way that if I saw your kid doing something in the hallway that was just grossly disobedient and it was unsafe, I might have a responsibility to try and help him to make sure he wasn't doing that. If it was my kid, I have a new level of responsibility, right? Someone see the kid acting out, they're like, who's this kid? I could say, not mine. I may try and help him, but I don't have the responsibility. Who's this kid? Mine, different responsibility. You get the image. The idea is that if someone's a church member and you work with this guy and he's doing something immoral, you not only have a general obligation, you have a specific obligation because he's not only carrying the name of Jesus, he's actually carrying the name of the body of Christ that represents Jesus to this city. And that name and that reputation as it relates to Jesus is very, very important. Therefore, as a member of the body of Christ, this body of Christ, we have different relationships as it relates to our responsibility. Being a church member means that you've covenanted together with a group of people and that together you're gonna follow Jesus and you're gonna help other people to follow Jesus. Church membership is not just the way that we identify the people who are eligible for church discipline, that's on the tail end, Membership is also the way that we identify, these are the people that I'm gonna do life with. These are my people. This is the expression of the body of Christ that are gonna help me grow and I'm gonna help them grow. The last couple of years I've spent some time thinking and studying this idea of church membership and you know what I, what I think? I think that all of us really need somebody, somebody to affirm our profession of faith in Christ. You, you need somebody to hear you say, here's, here's what I believe about Jesus, and to have somebody else besides you say, yeah, that's the gospel, and I, I believe you're a follower of Jesus. You need someone else in the context of the church to affirm that. You need a people to watch over your life, to evaluate your fruit for conviction and encouragement as well, because sometimes we get discouraged when these people come alongside us, and there's other times we need people to convict us because of the danger of self-deception. Although we use terms like a personal relationship with Jesus or my personal quiet time, you need to know that there's, that's legitimate at one level, but at another, I find that there are way too many people who have a casual connection to the body of Christ. And I think that a lifetime of discipleship does not happen well without a formal connection to a body of believers. Where you have said, these are my people, and I belong to them, and they belong to me. So for those of you who are members, I just wanna remind you, this is what it means to be a part of this body. And for those of you who aren't, there may be a number of reasons why you're not, and some of them may be substantially legitimate. There's some of you that there's, there's not a legitimate reason, and I would just encourage you and help you to think about the fact that you need someone to formally affirm and provide covenantal oversight for your life. You need that. And I would encourage you to think about being a part of a member of a church, especially this one. Is it ordinary? Yeah. But there's something extraordinary about it. And finally, there's the Lord's Supper. The final element is something that we're gonna put into practice in a few moments. The receiving of the bread and the cup is a memorial and re renewal meal. As a memorial, what we're doing is rehearsing what it is that the gospel means. We remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and in receiving these elements, we pledge our lives anew to this gospel. We're saying, Jesus, you took my sin, and your blood is my only hope, 
And when you receive these elements, these ordinary elements, we're reminded that something significant and powerful is embedded in them. But it's not just a memorial meal. It's also a renewal meal, where we not only renew our relationship with the Lord, confessing our sins, restoring our relationship with him if necessary, but it also means that we renew our commitment to one another. So if you're a member of this church, you need to know as we come to the Lord's table together, what we're in effect doing is we're renewing even our relationship with one another that we are representing Jesus on earth. And that's a serious, sober commitment. And we gotta help one another and look out for one another and know one another and pour into one another's lives. And that this meal has extraordinary implications. So the question is this. Does your view of the church need a little bit of an adjustment? Do you come to church with a bit of a market mentality? Kind of pick and choose what it is that you wanna be? Do you you come with a fortress mentality? Do you come with a spiritual ladder mentality? Do you come with, I just wanna learn more? Or do you you see the, the church as what it is? A body, the body of Christ of which you are a part, committed to and partaking of something that's way beyond ourselves. You see, the church has the keys of the kingdom. We represent Jesus to the world on the earth. And Jesus has embedded in that idea enormous power and authority, wonderful love, and unbelievable sense of what it means for us to bask in the beauty of God pouring out grace upon grace upon grace to us. See, we're the body of Christ. It's ordinary people who've been called out because of an extraordinary gospel, called to live out ordinary lives to a world that needs to see the beauty of God's grace because we represent Jesus to the world and we get to do it together. Bow your heads and let's pray. Ask those who are gonna serve communion if you'd come at this time and prepare. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to think about your word and to think about these these ordinary means of your grace. And um, help us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper to be reminded of not only what we celebrate in this meal, but to be reminded of the significance of this meal. To think not only of the beauty of the blood beauty of the body of Christ, but also what it means for us to be united together under the banner of the gospel. So as we meditate, as we worship, pray that you would renew our hearts, hear our prayers, forgive our sins, and cleanse us so we can walk anew and afresh. And pray this in Jesus' name, amen.